Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. It is a privilege to introduce to you Michael Suarez. Michael is a well-traveled, experienced, and engaging speaker, as you are about to see. He is a Jesuit priest, and in keeping with the tradition of the Jesuits, he brings to every forum in which he is involved a rich, interdisciplinary, scholarly background rooted in the humanities and referenced by a life that is dedicated to education, learning, and to teaching. For the past nine years, Michael has served as the executive director of an unusual educational institution, the Rare Book School at the University of Virginia, a nonprofit institute that has an international reputation as the finest school anywhere for teaching the history of books, manuscripts, and digital materials. Michael is also a professor of English literature at the University of Virginia. Prior to his tenure in Charlottesville, Michael served as a professor of English literature at Fordham University and as a tutor in English at Champion Hall, Oxford University. He has advanced degrees from Oxford, the Western Jesuit School of Theology, and an undergraduate degree from Bucknell University. Michael has written widely on numerous aspects of English literature, bibliography, and book history, and perhaps most notably, he was co-editor of the Oxford Companion to the Book, a mammoth reference work that has been described as magisterial, a paradise for book lovers, and a fount of knowledge. The list of Michael's published works, accomplishments, and the many recognitions he has received from learned societies and educational organizations is a lengthy one, a list much too long to do justice to in this brief introduction. And besides, to do that would contravene the reason for being here, which is to hear Michael do what he does best, which is to instruct and enlighten. Would you please join me in welcoming Michael Suarez? Thanks, John, for that gracious introduction. I'm really delighted to be among your number this evening. And I'd like to tell you a story, a story that begins with padding the old CV in 1785. This is... uh, St. John's College, Cambridge, and one of its young students, 22 years old, had just gotten his degree, his bachelor's degree in theology, and he was going to hang around Cambridge for a year or two to pile up some theological credits and to pad his resume a little bit so he could get a better preferment as an Anglican clergyman once he got ordained. He had just won, imagine there being such a thing, he had just won the Cambridge University Prize for an essay in Latin on a set subject, no less. And having won once, he decided, oh, I'll I'll go for it again. And the subject in 1785 was, is it lawful to enslave the unconsenting? John Clarkson wrote a lengthy dissertation on that, Thomas Clarkson, and he said, um, uh, I won the prize, no problem, and that was great, but I was unreflective. And several months later, he was on a ride in the countryside when Thomas Clarkson had his kind of moment of, if you will, secular revelation. He thought to himself, wait a minute, All those philosophical and theological arguments against human slavery that I adduced in order to show how learned I was, if those are really true, then I should dedicate my life to emancipating humankind. If those things are really true, I I should work for the abolition of the slave trade first and then the abolition of slavery. But Clarkson was a 22-year-old kid. He was good at the passive paraphrastic conjugation, but maybe not so great at knowing how the world went round. His idea of abolishing the slave trade was patently absurd. Between 1750 and 1800, British flagged ships transported one 
1.5 million human beings from Africa into the New World into a life of slavery. In fact, around 1750, 12% of that human cargo did not survive the Middle Passage. Conditions improved over the next 50 years so that by the time 1800 came, that was down to an oh-so-humane 8% of so-called wastage. That is to say, the death of human beings. And more died upon arrival in the period of seasoning on plantations in the New World we know a tremendous amount about the slave trade because it was such big business and tremendous business records survive. To say that you're going to abolish the slave trade is like saying we're going to take America and make it no longer using petrochemicals at all. It was that thoroughgoingly endemic to the economy. So uh, the sugar part of the slave trade alone in the West Indies comprised four times all the revenue of all the rest of Britain's colonies in the 18th century. Now you're going to eliminate the slave trade. You're a 22 year old kid. What do you do? Well, You meet some Quakers who you know are on your side and they take you to London and they take you to the print shop of a guy named James Phillips. And I'd like to be able to show you James Phillips print shop in George Yard on Lombard Street um, just here. But unfortunately, even though this is the place where the birth of abolition started in the United Kingdom, It doesn't exist because in the 1970s, a London council let the whole area be torn down and terrible 1970s condos be built in its place, which is its own tragic story for another day. But the Quakers brokered Clarkson to James Phillips, the printer who said, Let's edit this, shall we? (laughs) And I will publish it for you. And so he did. And um, here you see James Phillips in George Yard, Lombard Street, and sold by Thomas Cadell, another famous printer publisher, and an essay on the slavery and commerce of the human species. It won the first prize at the University of Cambridge. And um, this becomes an important marker in the beginning of the abolition movement in England. But Clarkson has higher ambitions than just publishing his prize essay. And so in this self-same printing office, in May of 1787, 12 businessmen congregate in Phillips's printing shop. Nine of them are Quakers. Three of them, including their chairman, is an Anglican. And these 12 businessmen, spurred by Clarkson himself, who's among their number, decide that they will dedicate their life and energies together to abolishing the slave trade, to do what could not be done. This is the place where abolition begins. And Unfortunately, we don't have many records about the history of abolition, but the jewel that we do have is the minute book of that abolition society. And here's their first meeting on May 22nd, 1787. And the abolition committee decides to do three things. Like any good committee, it's going to collect money. Very important, right? And it's going to use that money to gather intelligence about the horrors of the slave trade. And it's going to use that money for a program of publication, a media campaign. Remember, the mass medium of the 18th century is print, right? 
And so they're going to mount an unprecedented mass media campaign, chiefly, as we will see, through the medium of letterpress. And they're going to have a huge distribution network. May 22, 1787, we want to get these men together and we're going to distribute Clarkson's essay, the one you just saw, starts out with a publication. We're going to gather intelligence. We're going to collect subscriptions and we're going to publish. It's a publishing society. Very important. Two days later, they meet again. This is their zeal. They meet, 12 men meet two days later. They're running businesses. And they review Clarkson's new publication, a summary view of the slave trade and the probable consequences of its abolition. And they decide, yeah, let's print 2,000 copies right away. Let's go. Let's get into the business. Two days later, they're already starting on their mission. This is the summary view. Very, very importantly, it's a single sheet of paper folded up into an octavo. They print 2,000 of these right away, and they're going to print a lot more over the next decade. And it's cheap. It's easy to send through the post. It's easy to have in your pocket. And it can be distributed widely for not a lot of money. And you can make more fast. Very important. So you can see here, they say, hey, we've got a committee going. And oh, by the way, we'd like some subscriptions, please. Thank you very much. Send in money so that we can bankroll this operation. And... um, Very interestingly, when they explain the origins of the society, they say, encouraged by the success which has attended the publication of sundry tracts against slavery, this society was founded. They start with print. They start with what's come before, and they say, we know that there have been some tracts that have gotten attention, and we're going to become a kind of tract society, only they become so much more. So fast forward from May 1787 to August 1788. Ladies and gentlemen, that's 15 months. If you go through the books carefully, what you find is that in those 15 months, this committee researched, commissioned, financed, and printed 79,733 printed objects. 79,000 printed objects. A mass media print campaign unprecedented in human history. They flooded all the channels. This is a remarkable thing. Um, And... Here we see in the minute book some of the ways that they were able to distribute that print. You can see here 200 copies to their man in Manchester, 200 to Birmingham, York, Bristol, uh, Moorgate, Sheffield, Nottingham, Exeter, Norwich, New College, Oxford, Lincoln, and so on. They have a network of a network of a network of a network. And this is how they're able to saturate the British Isles, especially the people who are influential with the evidence of their arguments against the slave trade rooted in the horrors of the Middle Passage. Ladies and gentlemen, that manuscript that I've been showing you is in the British Library. But if you really want to know how they did it, You have to walk out the front door of the British Library and turn right on Euston Street. Walk 500 yards north and then, very precariously, cross the street. 
And then you will be at the Friends House Library, the main repository of the Quaker archives. And when you start to dig there a little bit, what do you see? That the Quaker committee, remember there are nine Quakers here, the Quaker committee had already been building these networks since 1784, and now they're giving those networks of distribution to the new London committee. So what do we have here? The underwriters at New Lloyd's, the mayor, the African company, it's a for-profit company, the India, the South Sea, the Russia, the Levant, the Hudson Bay, the bank, etc., the Royal Assurance. These are all the commercial partners who they're going to come in with. The underwriters at Lloyd's, names, addresses, If they die, they get taken off the list. Whose side they're on, how they vote, who they voted for members of parliament, whether they're best reached at their London residences or their country residences. This is Facebook before Facebook, okay? The magistrates in the county of Kent, and there's one for all the counties. The rectories and vicarages of Middlesex. So these are all the Anglican clergy. These are all the dissenting clergy, These are all the contacts further afield and on and on and on. Thousands of names, thousands of names with indications of their reliability, thousands of names with indications of how well they distributed previous publications and how many should be sent to them the next time. This is a remarkable network in a network in a network in a network. If some of you who are of a certain age are thinking of Amway, so be it. This remarkable distribution of 79,000 publications throughout the British Isles attracted a lot of attention, a lot of notice to the factors of those publications. And new talent began to pour in to the abolition committee in London. One of the main people was already a celebrity businessman named Josiah Wedgwood. And Wedgwood, the acquisition of Wedgwood, who was a longtime business partner of James Phillips, the printer, turned out to be absolutely a, a liminal event because it was Wedgwood and one of his uh, designers who created the logo for the movement. And here you see the kneeling slave saying, am I not a man and a brother? And this became a fashionable token, like a campaign button, if you will, that that men and women throughout the British Isles wore as a sign of their political sympathies. Thomas Clarkson tells us in his 1808 account of the abolition of the slave trade, that fashion is usually a bad thing, but in this case, fashion helped turn the tide. There are other very strange people, unusual players who come in. A businessman who's running Sheffield Potteries, a banker in Plymouth named William Elford, who must surely be one of the most talented men in England and probably the most talented human being you've never heard of. William Elford came from a, from a maritime banking family in Plymouth. He was a highly accomplished scientist and therefore was a fellow of the Royal Society. He was also a fellow of the Linnaean Society. But he was also a, a great artist and he was a fellow of the Royal Academy. Um, It was said by those in Bath that he was the finest whist player in all of England. (laughs) It was Elford who took on a banker from a shipping family who had the moral courage to take on the chairmanship of the Committee for the Abolition of the Slave Trade in his home city. A remarkable thing. And um, he had one other interesting connection. His schoolboy friend was a man named, oh yeah, 
William Pitt the Younger, who happened to be the Prime Minister of England. There had recently been a bill, a kind of palliative, if you will, a sop to the abolitionists that passed through both houses of parliament called the Dolben Act, which said, um, well, well, let's have the slave trade, but let's not crowd those slaves too badly. We'll create very humane conditions for them. They'll, they'll be very comfortable in their passage. This is a kind of ridiculous moral palliative, and um, Pitt knew it. But as the prime minister, he was responsible for enforcing the law. And so he sent one Captain William Parry of the Royal Navy up to Liverpool, the epicenter of the slave trade, to measure out nine slave ships and to get all the specs so that he would have some data to work with. Pitt had that data, and he had one of his clerks copy it and sent it straight away to William Elford. The first ship on the list was the slave ship Brooks. And when William Elford, the chairman of the abolition committee, got the stats, he realized he needed to visualize the data. And he was a fellow of the Royal Academy, a good artist. And he made the diagram of the slave ship. It was he who made the diagram of the slave ship, a maritime banker who risked his livelihood to take a stand. That's a remarkable thing. How many people ever heard of William Elford? And how tragic is the fact that he's been largely lost to human history? But sometimes people forget, you all recognize this, right? But people sometimes forget that Elford himself put his name on the pamphlet and penned 1,200 words of evidence to back up what he drew. This document, ladies and gentlemen, becomes the prototype for the diagram of the slave ship Brooks, and it's based on stowage diagrams that are familiar to everybody in a maritime culture. You can see the resonances right away. So the London Committee gets a copy of this pamphlet by the first post, and they say, this is great. This gives us a fantastic idea. And they commission James Phillips, the printer, and a group of others, as you can see, including Thomas Clarkson, to go work on improving it, to make it more forensic, so that they can use it as an instrument to argue before the House of Commons. After seven weeks' labor, this is what they produce. A new diagram of the slave ship Brooks, only not one diagram, seven diagrams, only not 1,200 words, but 2,400 words. And it's largely Thomas Clarkson and James Phillips who put this together, and this then becomes the piece of abolition propaganda that gets circulated again and again throughout the world. So um, as you can see some basic stats, there are 487 men, women, and children depicted, but in previous journeys, it's really much higher than that. And the slaves depicted in the slave ship Brooks are depicted at a lower rate than the Dolben Act provided for a lower rate. Think about that. This is luxurious quarters compared to what the law allows, right? They decided to lowball. They decided to be highly forensic in their argumentation. There's not a single passage of scripture in here. There's no, there's no invocation of why the cage bird sings, an 18th century trope, actually. Uh, there, there's none of that. This is about changing a law. 
And so they try to appeal to lawmakers as to what is right and just. One of the reasons why this becomes so successful is because of this chap, Alexander Falconbridge, who is a physician who finds himself out of work and he works on four journeys from the Guinea coast to the new world as a physician aboard slave ships. And then he sees the light and turns and writes his memoir of the abominations medically that he witnessed on board. The diagram of the slave ship Brooks is redolent with his eyewitness testimonies as a physician as to how the slaves were treated and um, what he saw. Um, we know that uh, the diagram of the slave ship Brooks was printed in 1,700 copies from copper plate, expensive and slow to print, and 7,000 copies from a woodblock and letterpress, cheap and fast. Okay. So, but meanwhile, when we look at the minute in the book, we see in the intervening 11 months, they printed another 35,000 items because they keep flooding the channels. They keep occupying the world of print everywhere you turn at every level of society, but particularly trying to persuade cultural elites. And this runs and runs and runs. So um, Clarkson himself t says the great thing about the diagram was that it gave the lie to the testimony of so many planters who falsely suggested that the Middle Passage was an easy travel. Enter the secret weapon of the Committee on the Abolition of the Slave Trade, William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce is an MP in the North, known for his sobriety and the power of his speaking voice. And he happens to be very close friends with Clarkson and with Phillips. And um, he's going to use all this data to create an argument before Parliament. And in order to do that, he commissions his own model of the slave ship Brooks. And he cuts up the diagram of the slave ship and pastes it inside deck by deck by deck so that he turns the two-dimensional representation of the statistics that William Alford had into a three-dimensional model, and he walks into the House of Commons, crosses the aisle, and finds the first man on the end and hands it to him, and puts the ship into his hands, and begins his speech. And famously, he says, so much misery condensed into so little room is more than the human imagination had ever before conceived. And this is the beginning of the long parliamentary war for the abolition of the trade, a war conducted largely but not exclusively through the medium of print. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Meanwhile, in America... William Elford and his Plymouth committee have sent their original pamphlet to the abolitionists, the Quakers in Philadelphia. And it just so happens that a guy named Carey here is the successor to Benjamin Franklin as the great Federalist printer. He 
publishes Matthew Carey, the American Museum. Look at the distribution list of the cities that the American Museum goes to. The most widely circulated and widely read monthly magazine in Great Britain. And uh, sorry, in, in the United States. And so what he does is he turns the May issue into Elford's pamphlet, a little bit expanded, and has, an, has the plate made. And so the slave ship comes to America, not in the Clarkson um, Phillips version, but in the original Elford version, because it gets there first. And then this becomes the parent, as it were, of the slave ship diagram in America for years and years. And the Pennsylvania Abolition Society makes the plate and they do what any good abolition society would do. They start to hand the plate around and they not only put it um, into, into the American Museum, but they make one in a deluxe fashion and they send it to every governor, to the president of the United States, all his cabinet, and to every member of both houses of Congress. Where is Congress sitting? Where is the federal government at this time? It's not in Philadelphia, and it certainly ain't in D.C. Federal Hall, New York. As a native New Yorker, I felt compelled to tell you that. So, um, as you will remember, uh, a little thing happens uh, in the summer of 1789 in France. Um, and, and Clarkson decides that after the storming of the Bastille that he needs to go there. But he's not going to go there empty-handed. He's going to go there with thousands of copies of abolition literature. If any of you can find me, there's not one at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. If any of you can find me, one of the original summer of 1789 um, uh, slave ship diagrams, which were printed in England, but translated into French, of course, I would very much, very much like to have one for my scholarly research. So Baker Street Irregulars, you have your homework. So... Um, Clarkson reports back about what happened, and, and he goes on at some length. He, the section of the slave ship let him see all the National Assembly. I find this most telling. The Bishop of Chartres once told me that he had not given credit to all the tales which had been related of the slave trade until he had seen this plate. It was known to make men weep, um, both in France and in the United States. Um, Wilberforce uh, kept going, kept pressing, kept pressing for testimony. And by 1791, he, uh, he's able to use the many people who Clarkson has lined up as witnesses to testify before the parliament. In one of the more famous and I might add morally repulsive incidents we hear the testimony about an overseer who threw a slave into a vat of cane juice. This so galvanized the British imagination uh, that James Gilray depicted this um, soon thereafter. And um, I, I, I use this illustration, I assure you, not in any gratuitous way, but in order to show you that print takes many forms, uh, in, including satire, and that the slave trade was a kind of omnidirectional campaign that went from high morality to low insult and to the power of satire, as it were, in between. Uh, and, and so this very incident was in the books of testimony that the abolition committee, through James Phillips, was, was publishing. So Joseph Addison said that no man ever tells a story except for it redounds well upon himself. I would like to tell you here in this august group how stupid I am because I, for years, was looking for the recut plates 
of the slave ship Brooks. And um, I went into archives and measured and used magnifying glasses and measured some more. And, and gosh, they all looked like the same damn plate to me until I found evidence in Catherine Plimley's diary that they were circulating the plate all around the British Isles and that all the images I had looked at were in fact made from the exact same block. So um, such is the nature of research. The figure of the kneeling slave, suppliant but asserting his human dignity, and creating a connection with the onlooker became omnipresent in British society. This is not a medal, although you might think so, nor is it a coin. It's illegal for private citizens to make coins. Uh, it's, it's called forgery, and um, it's a capital offense, actually. Um, but there, were, there was a shortage of specie in, in the British Isles in the late 18th century, and um, uh, that made it very hard for merchants to make change. So they made their own trade tokens, which were given in lieu of coins, and they could put whatever they wanted on those trade tokens so long as they didn't look like the king's money. And so this is one of a number of examples of trade tokens that adopted the abolitionist cause. But there's also, of course, the ubiquity of Wedgwood's own jasperware, of course, and, and even signet rings were made so that when you sealed the letter in wax, you could be showing, even if it were business correspondence, perhaps especially if it were business correspondence, you could show where your true allegiances lie. I was very pleased working in the archive of the Friends House Library in London to come across this diary of a visit to Scotland um, of William Dixon, who uh, gives a very detailed account of the more than 50 towns and cities he went to and delineates in great detail every person he saw and spoke with and how many copies of what publications he gave them and how they responded. Here you see divided 12 abstracts among the Paisley gentlemen. They all earnestly recommended a two-penny abstract as suiting every man's terms and purpose. I also a small and cheap copy of the debates and so on. So again, he's reporting back to his committee what kind of print products James Phillips and his team ought to be making out of George Yard in London to feed this. Um, William Dixon is a particularly interesting case because he came to the abolition committee and said, hey, I have something to say. I want to join your committee. And they said, we don't know who you are. Go away. And James Phillips, the printer, said, come to my printing office and I could probably take care of you. This became the letters on slavery became one of the most important publications in the history of abolition. And this copy is the copy I particularly wanted to show you this evening. This is a copy in the Boston Public Library. It was owned by a gentleman named William Lloyd Garrison. And that, to me, suggests um, something noble about the transatlantic connection of what these men and women, too, did in the UK that transferred over to the long war against slavery in the United States. So uh, let's just remember about 80,000 items, about 35,000 items. Um, you put those together, that's more than 100,000 items of print flooding the market in a very short uh, amount of time. And uh, eventually, spoiler alert, the, the, the slave trade was abolished, um, but not slavery, not the institution of slavery in 1807, a, a long uh, conflict uh, waged in the mass media that took 20 years. Most of the members of that original committee were long dead. 
And for the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade, stamps were made by the British government for Granville Sharp, the chairman, for William Wilberforce, the great parliamentarian, um, uh, and for Thomas Clarkson, of course, who was the tireless advocate. Um, both Clarkson and Wilberforce indeed hazarded, hazarded their own lives and health for the cause over time. And that's really great. This is the portrait of James Phillips, the printer, who, whose image is unknown to history and who's largely ignored. And, and uh, my telling you this story is part of my larger project. Who printed those 100,000 plus items? James Phillips. He's not even in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. That's crazy. He was one of the motive forces. Who brought Wilberforce, on, who brought um, Wedgwood onto the committee? Oh, James Phillips. Um, who had the connections in the Midland? Oh, James Phillips. And again and again and again. And yet he seems to be not here. I've been collecting his correspondence. I found about mm, 60 letters so far. Um, think about what your email is like. Uh, some of it's pretty rich, but, but a lot of it is very transactional and not so great. But I'm trying to rebuild something of his career. Um, uh, this may shock you that I say this as a Jesuit priest, but I don't really give a damn where he was baptized in what parish or anything like that. It's not of interest to me. What I care about is the fact that this man was a printer. And, and so I can recover hundreds of printed items that he made. Uh, in, in libraries and archives all over the world. And I'm committed to try to look at 90% of his printed surviving output in order to reconstruct his business and to position that business in relation to Quakerism and abolition. Why? Because he needs to be part of the story, the noble story of abolition. The slave trade diagram keeps getting repurposed throughout history here for um, a pamphlet on the importance of setting up slave colonies of free colonies of freed slaves in Africa here in in a poem published by an American publisher in New York um, with a fascinating list of subscribers. Um, and, and there's tremendous triumphalism when the slave trade is vanquished by parliament uh, and great self-congratulation. And that's all well and good. Uh, and the slave trade image, the slave ship image keeps going. Here's just one from Geneva in 1814. The medium is now changed. It's no longer wood. It's no longer etching and engraving from copper plate. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the slave ship Brooks adapted and the human forms have come alive through the technology of lithography. And I show this to you because as the medium changes, the message changes too, even as it remains the same. And here is a woman, slave, brought above decks, her breechcloth removed, one of her fellow slaves holding her head, and another helping her to deliver a baby into human captivity on board a slave ship. This is the story that the Swiss Committee for the Abolition of the Slave Trade had to tell. It's a story with a legacy, a legacy we now understand, a story repurposed for their own day. And the image goes on. Ladies and gentlemen, in our own time, the most conservative NGO estimates that 24 million human persons in the world today live in slavery. The upper estimate is about 42 million. Most of those people are women and children, and many of them are tied up in human trafficking associated with the sex industry. Many of them are domestic servants who are held in captivity. 
I think this story that we heard today asks us an important question about we who are privileged, we who are educated, we who go into the archive. What's the purpose of the humanities if not to make us more humane? What's the purpose of studying our human forebears if not to learn from their example and to become perhaps a little bit more human ourselves? Slave trade was abolished because 12 men gathered in a print shop in May of 1787 and set out to do the impossible. Some of them died before it was accomplished. A few of them lived to see the triumph, the human triumph, that became a beacon to the world. What are the images that we might marshal? What are the words that we might adduce to be agents of emancipation in our own time? What is the purpose of studying human history if we're not willing to be morally transformed by the stories we tell to each other by the stories of our forebears, stories of sacrifice and nobility. So knowing what you know now, who do you want to be? And what do you want to do? And what's the action that we are compelled to take in our own time today? Thank you very much. Wow. Transformational, indeed. Thank you so much, Michael. So much to think about. If anyone has a burning question. Was Phillips already an abolitionist himself when he agreed to do all this printing? No. No. He, became, he joined the committee. He met Clarkson. And obviously he had, he had anti-slavery sentiments. Um, and, and was involved with the Quaker Committee for Abolition, but he wasn't, he wasn't an active abolitionist. And, and yet somehow Clarkson got something from him transformative, uh, and he got something from the 23, then 23 year old kid, uh, that, that helped him and galvanized his moral sensibility. And then with a number of others, they used his shop as a meeting place and began their uh, tremendous enterprise. Was Elford's family in Plymouth involved in the slave trade? Almost certainly. I don't think that they owned uh, plantations in Barbados. Uh, but since they were uh, bankers who were funding the, the merchant ships and, and, um, since Bristol was the second biggest slave port, uh, and is quite proximate to Plymouth, um, it really, it, it stands to reason that the family was making money from the slave trade. Um, you know, how, how do you, do you need to, do you need to be an overseer to be involved in the slave trade? Well, patently not, right? So, so were they implicated? Yeah. I, I think Alfred's an astonishing human being that he would put his name. I mean, it's like John Hancock, right? You know, it's there and, and it says, you know, here I am, here I stand. It's a remarkable thing. Alfred, by the way, kind of felt slighted that, that, the, that he was effectively erased from the London Committee's work. And he published a version of, the slave, of his own slave trip, uh, ship using the seal of the London Committee. So he thought, if you're going to steal something from me, I'm going to steal something from you. So the question is, what was happening in Africa at this time? So... Um, that's a complicated story because there's not one, not one thing is happening in Africa, right? Um, it's a, it's a huge continent, but, but on the, on the coast where the slave traders were primarily operating, there were, uh, there were a number of, um, factors, you know, men who are implicated in the trade because they were given by their standard tremendous wealth to be complicit and to help lure 
families and even whole tribes to the coast for capture. So, so there, there, there was a, uh, there was certainly a, an indigenous cooperation by some and a rebellion by others. Um, and, and so there are many slave, slave stories, and I didn't really talk about the contemporaneous, you know, Equiano's narrative and, and those of others to talk about that aspect of it. But, but what's happening in Africa at the time is, is both story of noble resistance and story of, of cupidity and avarice and therefore complicity in, in the enslavement of, of human beings. It's both and, it's not either or. Other than the Quakers, were there other religious groups who were against slavery? Well, you know darn well that the Anglican Church isn't going to come out as a church against slavery because Anglicanism is part of the Erastian state, right? You know, the Archbishop of Canterbury is appointed by, you know, the, the, the prime minister and the king, right? So, so no. And in fact, the Bishop of London vacillates in a pretty terrible way. But, but the Methodists who still consider themselves Anglican become become quite ardent supporters and other nonconformists. John Wesley writes a beautiful essay before these guys got going on on the immorality of, of slavery and the slave trade that I warmly recommend to you. So so uh, the Methodists are very much very much um, on board here, as are some of the other low church nonconformists. Um, generally speaking, um, the more the more establishment you are, the the more your family is going to be tied up in this, and you have an interest in not letting it go. That that's not entirely true because there were members of the House of Lords who spoke very courageously in favor of abolition. But it's the exception, not the rule, for a long time. Well, the Catholics had no franchise for for a start, so they had no no representation for for one thing, and and very little public voice. Um, however, the Catholics, for the most part, opposed the slave trade, even though they were concentrated in Liverpool. The problem was many of the ones in Liverpool who had come from Ireland were domestic servants and therefore not at liberty to speak against their masters. But um, certainly, let's say that the Jesuit presence from in England from the 17th century, um, it was in fact the Jesuits who were working in Central America who asked the question, uh, do indigenous peoples of Africa and Central America um, have souls? because the Portuguese had said they didn't. And um, they said, well, yes, of course they do. They're human beings just like us. They're deserving of salvation and, and slavery is wrong. There are a lot of, I, I skipped all the, the literature with clergymen arguing back and forth and proof texting from scripture. It kind of goes nowhere and is pretty uninteresting. What's more interesting to me, at least, is, is when um, Jesuits and to their credit, Dominicans, um, often start to argue from uh, principles of um, the ontology of a human being and what does it mean and what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God and therefore why slavery is wrong. And, um, and St. Paul's famous line, slaves be obedient to your masters, which is adduced again and again and again by the planter class, is, is refuted as a kind of cultural entailment of the time rather than a statement of principle. So, yeah. Homage to printers, huh? This is what this is all about. And homage to Michael Suarez, who has been our fabulous, fabulous speaker. His, his knowledge is just absolutely astonishing. So thank you, audience, for being here, as well as those listening. And now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 116th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. <laughs>